The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. Today, we would like to uh, go back to the book of Malachi to have some uh, concluding thoughts. Uh, we've com- concluded the uh, book of Nehemiah, but the latter portion of the book of Nehemiah, particularly Nehemiah chapter 13, relates to the prophecy of the book of Malachi, and we'd like to have uh, some concluding thoughts about the book of Malachi. We gave some uh, consideration of that in weeks past, but we really didn't actually get to the book of Malachi, uh, so hopefully we can do that uh, today. But um, just to kind of refresh, it's been a few weeks since we've talked about that, so uh, just to kind of refresh, I do want to go to Second Timothy chapter 3 to introduce and again remind you of some of the things that we We'd mentioned in, in weeks past. Later on in the book of Nehemiah, obviously we have the amazing revival and restoration and the rebuilding of the wall in only 52 days. But then they recommit to the covenant in the midst of the aftermath of that. Uh, Nehemiah goes back to serve the Persian king. And then 12 years later, he goes back and all the things that they had committed to uh, uphold in uh, the reinstitution and the rededication of that covenant 12 years earlier, they're right back doing the exact same thing. They're intermarrying with the Gentiles and being seduced to commit idolatry. They don't have the proper separation with the Gentiles that's required in the law. They're being very frivolous in their, their marriages, and we find in the book of Malachi as well as divorces, and they are not observing the... Sabbath day, they are not supporting the Levites and they're not supporting the temple. And Nehemiah goes back and finds out that condition and he very zealously calls on them to repent. And in association with that, uh, I think that gives more context, gives more clarity to that situation that Nehemiah was dealing with is the prophecy in the book of Malachi, which is the last book. I want to make sure, big picture, we line up where this is at because I think it's very relevant for us as we get uh, closer and closer and closer, Lord willing, to the second coming of the Lord, okay? So the book of Malachi is the last bit of inspired scripture that we have before the 400 silent years... that precede the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think many of the conditions that we see leading up to the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ will also be very prevalent and probably even increased and magnified the closer we get to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the aspects of that state of religion, so to say, even among God's people, even among those that give, give the pretense of religion. Second Timothy chapter 3, uh, he's describing in the last days, perilous times will come, dangerous times will come, and he gives a very 
long description of all the attributes of those perilous times. But one phrase that he uses in verse 5 is having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And we just kind of skip through here uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Um, all that, verse 12, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And that's true as a general principle, but it's especially true, again, the closer and closer we get to the second coming of the Lord. Because evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And, and we know these next verses really well, especially verses 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, right? Yea and amen. But don't ever forget the context in which God gives us this beautiful scripture on the divine inspiration and thereby the divine preservation of the word of God. It is in the midst that the word of God has to be the stabilizing anchor for God's people in the midst when the whole world is crumbling around them, right? In the midst of perilous times, in the midst of, of people that we used to put confidence in fading away and flaking away. What do we, what do we put our anchor and our confidence in? The word of God, right? <clears throat> the word of God. And then kind of continuing on there into chapter four, he says, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, <clears throat> excuse me, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. Now kind of tie this in with what we read there in chapter three and verse five. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And then in verse four, or chapter four and verse three, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. So they just want someone that's going to tell them what's palatable to their flesh, even born again children of God that are somewhat carnal or especially lukewarm. I don't think it's surprising that that, again, I don't think that the seven churches of Asia are necessarily distinct time periods of church history. But I think it's very clear that the closer and closer we get to the second coming of the Lord, Christianity as a whole, in the midst of a falling away that's talked about in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, is going to look a lot like the Laodicean church that is lukewarm. Okay? So all these things, all these things, I think, um, at least from my perspective, I think that we can see many of these attributes, at least the beginning of it, and I think it'll most likely only escalate. Many of these attributes in the general disposition of Christianity in America today. Okay, so this is relevant. This, these, uh, this situation, this culture, this environment of religion, a form of godliness, and, and people just desiring to uh, hear what's palatable to them instead of uh, just accepting the plain teaching of the Word of God. This is the environment that we're called to let our light shine in the midst of, okay? So I think this is very relevant to us. <clears throat> Another verse that I, kind of, that I think kind of encapsulates this kind of environment is in Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 4 and in verse 1. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel 
Only let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. Okay, so first of all, God's pattern for marriage is one man and one woman for one lifetime, right? But seven women are what most of the time is the other way around, right? <laughs> if you think about Mormons or these other cults, the men are wanting to have more than one wife. But actually, in this instance, seven women are wanting to take hold of one man. And essentially, they want to do everything that they want to do, right? Uh, God's pattern in marriage is for the wife to submit to the headship and the authority of the husband. Now, the husband is supposed to love his wife the way Christ loved the church, and if he does that, it's very joyful to submit to a man that loves you the same way that Christ loved the church. But they have no desire to submit to God's pattern in marriage. They really don't even desire to be married, really. They don't really des desire to even um, be held to the covenant of marriage. We want to eat our own bread. We want to wear our own bread. We want to do everything that we want to do. We just want to be called by your name to take away our reproach, to make things more palatable in our life. <clears throat> and I believe that, again, is a very pertinent verse that describes certainly the situation in the book of Malachi. And then you fast forward 400 silent years where there's no prophetic vision before the coming of John the Baptist. And if things look bad in the book of Malachi, they are incredibly worse and even darker than we see in the book of Malachi and even uh, less fervent, devoted. Uh, all the problems we see in Malachi is just magnified so much farther by 400 years of God not sending prophetic vision in these 400 silent years, okay? And it was such a dark, a spiritually dark period when Jesus Christ came on the scene. But you know what? Even though in the midst of it being such a spiritually dark period, there were still people that were going through the motions and the form of religion, weren't they? Right? There were still sacrifices being made at the temple. There was still men who were teaching in the synagogues on the Sabbath day. There was a lot of religious pretense being displayed. But spiritually, it was a very dark time period. And what I didn't read, you don't have to go back there, but what I didn't read there in Isaiah chapter 4, where it says in that day, now I think that applies, it's applied in many generations, it'll certainly apply closer we get to the second coming of the Lord, but certainly applied in, in uh, Jesus' generation as well. But notice what the remedy for that is. Okay, you have these women that want to take hold of one man and we just want to do our own thing, but be called by your name, take away our approach. And what's the remedy for that? Verse two, and that day shall the branch of the Lord be glorious and beautiful and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. So what's the remedy for that type of uh, religious environment? the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as the branch of the Lord, right? And that's certainly the remedy for it the closer we get to the second coming. What's the remedy? The branch is going to come the second time, right? So that is the remedy for this, certainly this, uh, this lukewarm um, form of godliness, itching ears, um, religious environment that I believe 
that we're at least seeing the beginning seeds of. And I tend to think that it will only continue to escalate if we are in the midst of the falling away among God's people. Okay? So let's go to the book of Malachi. <clears throat> the very last book in the Old Testament. <clears throat> the book of Malachi. And we kind of highlighted uh, some, uh, some verses for you in previous weeks. Um, how the Lord rebukes this group of people, this generation of people. And they had a total inability to look in the mirror and to realize the reality of their... They didn't see any problem with what they were doing, okay? And the verse I didn't emphasize as we went through those verses that really sets the tone for the whole thing that we want to make sure we emphasize this time is in verse 2, okay? Malachi chapter 1, again reading in verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So it's very important to understand that this is, this is not Malachi's personal opinions. This is the Lord speaking directly to his people, okay? This is not the opinions of a preacher. This is the, you know, similar to how um, in the second and third chapter in the book of Revelation, that those letters to those seven churches, that is Jesus Christ writing to those churches. This is Jesus' opinion of those churches. Well, this is Jehovah God's opinion of his people during this very lukewarm period in the latter portion of Nehemiah chapter 13. Okay, <clears throat> verse 2. I have loved you, saith the Lord. God reaffirms his love toward his people. But notice their response. All this stuff that we see later on that um, they are giving, giving the Lord the leftovers in their sacrifices. They're not giving the Lord the very best that they have. They're giving him the, the speckled and the spotted and the, the lame animals. Uh, they're neglecting the support of the Levites and the priests. They are di divorcing in a way that's not in accordance with the word of God. Um, they are not giving freely uh, to support the temple. All these things, those are symptoms, okay? Those are symptoms. But notice this root cause right here. Notice this root cause. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? <laughs> What's the greatest commandment? To love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and all of our mind. And the reason why we do that is because of the great love that he's bestowed upon us, right? If we see the beauty of God's love to it, God's easy to love, amen? I mean, the hard part is loving people here in this world and loving your enemies and, and uh, loving people that are difficult to deal with. That's the hard part. Loving God is easy. It should be. Why? Because of the great love that he's bestowed upon us. And God reaffirms that love. I have loved you, saith the Lord. But notice, all these symptoms stem from what? They either took for granted or they disregarded on a daily basis the love and the mercy and the grace of Almighty God in their life. They said, Lord, where have you loved? If you really loved us, why in the world did we ever go to Babylon, right? If you really loved us, why would you have ever sent us into Babylonian captivities? And then God essentially tells them, the reason why I loved you is because I sent you into captivity, right? I loved you enough to chastise you to bring you to repentance. But notice, all these problems of this lukewarm form of godliness, giving the, the pretense 
and the vanity of religion, but not the fervency of service to the Lord from the heart. Where's it all stem from? A lack of gratitude and a lack of vision of God's love for them. And then not only just being complacent, it's one thing to, <laughs> to just be complacent and maybe take it for granted, but they, they had the gall, uh, if you put this kind of in animated form, to look in the Lord's eyes and say, wherein have you even loved us, right? They had the gall to talk to the Lord that way. Where did, where did all these problems stem from? A taking for granted, a lack of gratitude for the Lord's love in their life. Okay? I've loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou what? Do you really even love us, Lord? Do you really even love us? <clears throat> then we have uh, him reaffirming his love for Jacob and Esau. And I feel like since we're here, we're not in the book of Malachi very often. Uh, so I think since we're here, and this is uh, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, uh, hated that's quoted from uh, Romans chapter 9. I feel like we need to make the point right here. You know, some people would say, uh, get really offended when the New Testament very clearly summarizes this passage by Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And they try to water down the word hate and say, oh, it means love less. Okay? Look at the rest of the text. Okay? This is the latter part of verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Edom, Edom is, is the heritage and the descendants of Esau. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished and we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build and I will throw down. They shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. Now, when you read that, do you get any indication that he just loves them a little bit less than Jacob? No, it sounds a lot like God means what he said, that he hates them. And furthermore, he said, not only do I, do I hate Esau and the descendants of, of Edom, but you, your, your cities have been condemned and they have been cursed. And when you try to build them back up, I'm going to tear them right back down. <laughs> okay? So, what does the Bible mean when it says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated? You know what it means? Jacob have I loved. And Esau have I hated, right? Now, we always want to approach that from the right perspective, right? We're all fallen, come short of the glory of God, and there's no person that is worthy of the love of God. That's why it's unmerited favor. That's why it's grace. We are all in the condition of Esau, and the only reason why he saw fit to love Jacob is not in any merit in and of himself. You look at Jacob, he was a mess. He was a supplanter. He was a liar. Everything he did messed up. And God chose to love him anyway, right? <clears throat> to magnify, why? Why did he do all that? To the praise of the glory of his grace, right? To magnify his love and to magnify his grace. So, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. The beauty of election. Okay, now let's skip to verse 6. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If I then be a father, where is mine honor? If I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priest that despise my name. And ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? We haven't done anything wrong. There's, there's not a single problem with the way that we're approaching you in worship or in service. 
Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. Now, there's no way they would ever verbalize that, right? There's no way that they would ever stand before a priest or stand before the Lord and say, Thy table is contemptible. But notice, their actions are preaching that sermon. By their actions, they are displaying that down in their heart, they view the table of the Lord as contemptible. Verse 8, if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? If you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts. So they had developed this environment where they felt like it was totally acceptable to give the Lord the lame and the sick. And when I have called out my herd and I've found the, the, uh, the livestock, the bullocks or the goats or the sheep in my herd that I don't really think are going to be very profitable for me, once I've called out the worst that I have in my herd, those are the people I'll take up to, those are the animals I'll take up to the temple to offer unto the Lord. Now, what does the law of God require? What does the Mosaic law require? That you give the first fruits of your herd and you give the Lord the very best of your herd. So you, you, you do an evaluation of your livestock and you find the very best looking bullock that you've got and you go and you offer him to the Lord as a token of gratitude for his blessings in your herd and in your livestock. Now, we're kind of skipping ahead here, but um, this is in chapter 3 and in verse 8. He says, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee in tithes and offerings? Now, the idea of robbing gives the idea that there is something that is owned by someone else and you are unlawfully taking something that belongs to somebody else for your own use, right? What they were doing was they were robbing God, right? That, that first uh, born of, of your flock, of your livestock, that was the very best of your flock, that was the Lord's that he gave to you. And if you choose to use it in and of yourself, then you're robbing God. Now, that, that puts the right perspective on everything, doesn't it? That everything I have is the Lord's, and if I choose to withhold what is rightfully His in honor and worship and giving back to Him, we're not under the, the 10% tithe, but God loves a cheerful giver, and cheerful giving typically looks a lot more uh, than, looks a lot more than 10% a lot of times, but God loves a cheerful giver, Okay? But that's the right perspective to approach giving, and, and not just the giving of, of finances, but the giving of goods, uh, the giving of our time, et cetera, et cetera. It all belongs to the Lord. And if we try to hoard some of that that's rightfully the Lord's in and of ourselves, the Lord says, here, you're robbing me because it's mine. You see that? It's his, and you're taking something that is rightfully his, and you're consuming it unlawfully, in and of yourself, okay? So, 
they were finding the worst 5% of their whole flock, and then that's what they were offering to the Lord. And he said, look, you go and you offer that to the governor, and what do you think his response is going to be? Right? What, if, if you offered some dignitary, you know, the governor, uh, the president, if you offered some dignitary, some animal that's speckled, half-dead, looks diseased, and say, I am so thankful for you to invite me to visit you. I have brought this animal as a token of my gratitude for you allowing me to dine at the governor's mansion. And this, uh, would, this animal would probably be put down by any vet that would see it today, right? If you, if you saw an animal that looked that bad and you offered it to the governor, would he say, wow, thank you so much. I can't wait to eat that thing, <laughs> right? Uh, no, he would say, that is a dirty, rotten animal. Go kill it, and we're going to eat the fatted calf, right? Even in a very natural sense, if you offered it to a natural person, they would not only rebuke you, boy, this is a day you mess up with some uh, governmental leaders, they'll chop your head off. You can get your head chopped off for offering something like this to a governor, but you're going to offer it to the Lord and not see any problem with that? And then I don't only see any problem with it, but then when you're rebuked about it, say, Lord, what's wrong? We're not doing anything wrong. We're not doing anything wrong. The idea here, the lesson here, is that the Lord deserves the very best we have. Okay? The Lord deserves the very best we have. I remember um, back when I was first starting my career and first job I had with Watkins Ward and Stafford, um, there's a... Uh, it was commonplace in America, you know, 80 years ago, 50 to 80 years ago, for men to wear suits everywhere they went, a suit and tie, right? And that's really kind of faded now. Um, thankfully, uh, I don't really have to wear a tie. I do to church because I, uh, most Sundays, just because I feel like that that's a good thing to do. But the, the general disposition of the business place now does not require ties in the way that it used to. But the managing partner of the firm that I work for, he grew up in those days. So my first job, every single day at work, even if we were in the office, I was required to wear, wear a tie at work every single day. <clears throat> and um, when I went to church, I wore just a regular golf shirt, polo. And I remember distinctly going to a church meeting. I feel like it was actually down in possibly Middleton Creek, actually. Um, and I feel like Brother James Conley may have been preaching that meeting uh, before he moved back to Mississippi. I can't really remember. But this wasn't even really the main premise of his sermon, but that's how the Holy Spirit convicts you sometimes, that he just kind of brushed over these verses here in Malachi and talked about offering the Lord uh, the sick and the lame. And I was just very convicted, for me personally, that I was literally dressing down for church because I was forced to wear a tie to work, but I did not wear a tie to church. So I was very convicted about that and started wearing a suit and a tie. And these old sisters back at Bethany, bless their heart, they were all kin to me. We got all these great aunts that thought I was going to be a preacher. 
all these years, based on no evidence, really, other than me being my father's son. There was not really any spiritual evidence of that. Um, but when I started wearing a, a suit and a tie to church, they started trying to shove me in the pulpit. <laughs> because that's evidence, right? Because the only people who wear a shirt and tie to church, uh, especially a suit, um, then that's evidence that they're called to preach, right? Uh, but the point is, though, that I was very convicted, at least for me personally, that I was dressing down to church. And the Lord convicted me that I needed to do better. I needed to do better. Now, we go to Wednesday night services. Um, you know, I wear jeans and a T-shirt to Wednesday night service. Um, I'm not going to tell you what you need to wear to church, okay? But every decision you make in your life needs to be framed through the lens of I, I'm doing this with the intention of giving the Lord the very best that I have, okay? And one of the ways that I express the very best that I have in an external way is that, you know what, I want to wear the very best I have to present myself in worship before the Lord, okay? Now, where that line is for you, that's between you and the Holy Spirit, okay? Uh, I think y'all are mature enough to be able to make those decisions yourself, but that does not just apply to the attire that we wear to public worship. I want to give the, very, the Lord the very best I have in worship, right? And one of that, one of the things I need to be purposeful in doing is to make sure I go to bed at a reasonable time on Saturday, Saturday night, right? If I'm going to give the Lord the very best I have on Sunday morning, I don't need to stay up to 3 a.m. On, on a Saturday night, right? If I'm going to give the Lord the very best I have in public worship, I need to be reading my Bible all throughout the week. I need, as soon as we leave services today, you need to begin praying for the services next Sunday. And hopefully you can attend a midweek Wednesday night service or a Bible study. You need to be praying for the midweek service. And then the same thing, as soon as you leave the midweek service, begin praying for that next week, midweek service, as soon as you leave for that, Right? All of that is preparing you to give the Lord the very best you have in public worship. But worship extends far beyond just public worship. Our, our entire life is an act of worship. Our body is a living sacrifice. So when I go about my daily activities, when I go to work, when I go to study for tests, when I go to fulfill whatever responsibilities I have during the day, through what lens do we approach that? To give the Lord the very best that we have. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whatsoever, uh, whether you eat or drink, do all unto what? Unto the glory of God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it heartily. Give it the very best. And why should you give it the very best that you have? Why should you uh, do it heartily? What's the rest of that verse? Do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Well, that really changes the way you approach these menial tasks at work on a daily basis, doesn't it? Am I just trying to do the bare minimum to kind of skirt by my supervisor? Or would I maybe step things up a little bit if the Lord was going to review my work, right? If the Lord was my supervisor. The point is, I'm whatever my hand undertakes to do, 
I'm not going to give the Lord the leftovers, the lame and the sick, and the things that, that are not even really that important to me. I'm going to give the Lord the very best I have. And that applies in public worship. It applies, uh, he condemns them for not supporting the Levites and not supporting the temple. It applies in your finances. It applies in your time. It applies in the way that you conduct these menial tasks on a daily basis. Everything you do, you do it heartily as unto the Lord. Why? Why does he deserve the best that you have? Because he gave you the best he had, right? He gave you the best he had, which is the blood of the Son of God to redeem you from your sins. So whatever your hand finds to do, you give the Lord the very best you have. And there are indicators of that. <laughs> as I said, uh, you present, I hope when you come up for public worship, when you show up for public worship, you, you're doing it with the intention that my, the way that I conduct myself, the way that I uh, choose my attire is displaying to the people around me that I want to give the Lord the very best I have to offer. You know, I'm, I'm not going to condemn you, but if you showed up in, if I showed up in my mowing clothes or, you know, the clothes I just used to change the oil in my truck or something, any of you should say, that's not appropriate here. The Lord deserves better than your, than your dirty oil clothes, right? You present the Lord with the very best you have, okay? And trust me, the Holy Spirit is a very thorough furnisher <laughs> to let you know if there's any area that we might be giving the Lord the leftovers. Okay, continuing on here, um, he, he severely rebukes the Levites and the priests, okay? Now, in the New Testament context, we are kings and priests before God. Uh, we have a holy priesthood, and there's a sense in which we are all priests before the Lord. But I think the context here is not necessarily applying to every single child of God. It certainly can apply in some context. But, but what he's describing here is the spiritual leaders were not setting a devoted, fervent, example for the rest of the people to follow. Now, why did it end up that these, that the, that the general population in Jerusalem at this time was offering these lame, speckled, leftover animals and they thought that was okay? You want to know why? Because when they presented that to the Levites, those Levites should have, in a loving way, chewed them out. Mm -hmm. They said, they should have said, Lord, the Lord deserves the very best you. You go home and you kill this animal that's, that's this lame, sick leftovers, and you bring the Lord the very best you have. You want to know why the people got complacent? It's because the spiritual leadership got complacent. And the Lord comes down, we don't have time to look at all this, but the Lord comes down on them heavy and hard. Because the reason why this environment of cavalier, lukewarm, doesn't really matter what I give to the Lord, the reason why they thought that was okay, because the spiritual leadership did not uphold the standards of the Word of God, even when it was difficult, even when it offended people, okay? And that's an admonition to myself and those that are in positions of spiritual leadership in the church we have to set the tone. And the way we set the tone is by upholding the standards of the Word of God. 
Okay? <clears throat> that is the... And he, he kind of takes a couple rounds at him, if you, if you read this, uh, a couple different cycles of rebuking the priests and the Levites. And that's the main theme from verse 9 through about chapter 2 and verse, and chapter two and verse 9. And then he starts dealing, uh, chapter uh, 2 and verse 10, um, he essentially is telling them that because you did not separate yourself from these Gentile heathens in the way that I told you to, the way, because you did not uphold the uh, commandment of the word of God to not marry these Gentiles of these pagan idolatrous people, you are being tempted to compromise the worship of Jehovah God. Okay, now, during this time period in Jerusalem, in times past, boy, they got down some horrible places and they were actively worshiping Baal and Ashdod and Ashtoreth and all this stuff. And they were worship, actively worshiping all these false gods. Well, that wasn't happening in Jerusalem, was it? No, they were still going through the pretense of worship in the temple, right? They were still making all these offerings. So they were not actively falling down and worshiping some Baal graven image. But instead, they were allowing idolatry to seep in, not through a physical graven image, but by their lack of reverence for Jehovah God. Okay? So he, can, he condemns their idolatry there. Um, chapter uh, 2 and verse 14. Now he starts dealing with divorce. Wherefore, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Uh, skip to verse 16. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away, for one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that they deal not treacherously. The Lord hates divorce. The Lord hates it. And they were dealing with divorce in such a trite way that uh, they had, they were doing this in this generation, but you fast forward through those 400 silent years and uh, Jewish history tells us that they had created all of these ad hoc rules that these uh, Pharisees and scribes had come up with. They came up with all these ridiculous reasons to divorce their wives for literally essentially no reason at all, some just trivial, trite thing. And this is 400 years before they even got to that point. But he says, you are dealing treacherously with the wife of your youth. Let's go to um, Matthew chapter 19 as quickly as possible. Um, Jesus deals here in the New Testament with marriage and divorce. Matthew chapter 19 and in verse 3, the Pharisees, the people who had created all these rules to come up with tried excuses to put their wife away. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And then Jesus answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, 
and they shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore hath God joined together? Let not man put asunder. Then they said, well, why did Moses then uh, give a writing of divorcement to put away? Well, if that's the case, then why did God uh, give the option of divorcement? Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts. If you look at the root cause of every divorce, at some point, I can tell you, according to the words of Jesus Christ right here, the beginning seed that grew into divorce is the hardness of your heart. And boy, there is no place where we need to be more active and fervent and diligent in forgiveness than in marriage. Because if we don't, and we allow things to grow, hardness of heart will eventually take root. And then when hardness of heart grows and grows and grows, if there's no repentance, unfortunately it can lead to divorce. Because of the hardness of your heart, he suffered you to put away your wives from the beginning. It was not so. My intention was never for there to be any putting away. Why? Why is there? Because of the hardness of your heart and the sin of man. Now I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except to be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her that is put away, doth commit adultery. Now, uh, in times past, I've used the phrase of a biblically justified divorce. There's no such thing as a biblically justified divorce. There is a biblically permissible divorce. And those two means of biblically permissible divorce are fornication and abandonment. But outside of that, you know... You say you don't love each other anymore. Well, who cares? You've made a covenant. You've made a covenant. And it is up to you to revive your love for that person. <laughs> okay? Uh, you, you know, we've grown apart. Okay? Well, get some counseling and grow back together according to the Word of God, right? There, there, is, uh, there is no excuse. There is no justification now, there are, there are extreme circumstances where the Lord says, if you can't bear it, I will permit you, under fornication and abandonment, I will permit you to be divorced. But that was never the Lord's will. Never the Lord's will. But these people in the book of Malachi were just, which is just the, the environment that we have in not just, not just America, but in American Christianity, where we just get to divorce for any reason, a no-fault divorce. I mean, they, uh, there's a legal term that describes it as a no-fault divorce. Well, let me tell you, God doesn't agree with that. <laughs> if if you're reckoned, if you are putting away apart from these two means of biblically permissible divorce, there is absolutely fault in those two parties. Okay, but here in this environment. Marriage was viewed as a very trite thing, okay? And fast-forwarding to the environment of the second coming of the Lord, you know, it describes and it compares the society and the culture before the second coming of the Lord to the time of Noah and the city of Sodom. And one of the descriptions of that is that it says, that they were marrying and given in marriage. And I've kind of read that in times past, and it's like, okay, well, they're, they're just going through the normal course of, you know, 
that that uh, passage there in Matthew 24 is really saying, you know, be ready. The Lord can come at any moment, right? Oh, so they're just going through the normal course of action. You know, they're marrying, giving in marriage, um, the normal daily activities. But, but really, I think what's being displayed there is that there will come a time. And if you, I think it's only going to continue to escalate. But if you look at where we're at 50 years ago and where we're at now, there will come a time where any perception of marriage is unbiblical and very trite that it doesn't re- marriage doesn't really mean anything anymore they're just marrying and giving in marriage even people who supposedly and whoever takes these polls and identifies as evangelical christians i sure don't think they're old baptist but whoever identifies as evangelical christians the divorce rate in these polls is just the same as the the average in the rest of the population okay what are we talking about? We're not talking about the world out here. We're not talking about uh, all the heathen. We're talking about God's people living in a very unsanctified, irreverent way where it looks almost just like the rest of the world. And if you look at that percentage, people who supposedly identify as Christians have the exact same percentage as divorce as people who don't identify. And then those that are married and marrying and given in marriage, now we have... The uh, don't don't ever give anyone the uh, the high ground to even give them the phrase of same sex marriage. There's no such thing as same sex marriage. None. It's just sin. It's just an about. It's not a marriage. It doesn't matter what document a uh, a state entity may give you or what you can supposedly file on your tax return. In God's eyes, marriage is one man. And one woman for one lifetime. Period. Period. And anything outside of that is contrary to the word of God. But that environment for the Lord's second coming, there is going to be total corruptions and dilutions of the covenant of marriage at every hand. And we've seen a taste of that, haven't we? But boy, it's only going to continue to escalate. It's only going to continue to escalate. Okay, back in the back book of Malachi, verse 17. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, wherein if we wearied him? We're not doing anything wrong. <laughs> and the Lord, he says, you wearied the Lord with your word. I'm tired of you back-talking me, son. <laughs> and, they, and then, as any spoiled little brat would say, what are you talking? I'm not, <laughs> they back-talk about not back-talking, right? You've wearied me with your words. What are you talking about? What, how have we wearied you? We haven't, we haven't done anything wrong, especially our irreverent uh, rebukes of the Lord. Now, what's the remedy for all this? Okay, first time. The first time. This is the environment multiplied by 400 silent years. Horrible, horrible environment. What is the, what is the remedy for this lack of spirituality? Chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord shall uh, Lord shall come, and the Lord whom ye seek shall come suddenly to his temple, temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight in. And behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So what was the remedy for this uh, dark, cold, lukewarm, spiritual environment 
that even we see magnified here in the book of Malachi that was exponentially worse with 400 silent years when Jesus showed up the first time. What's the remedy for that? For a God called prophet, Jesus Christ, I mean, uh, John the Baptist being the last of the prophets, a preacher, to show up. And what was his message? What was his message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everything you think you're doing that's fine, you're doing it exactly wrong. Repent and do the opposite, 180 degree opposite. <laughs> so the remedy for this is for God to call men, to call God's people to repent and then the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for the plumb line. Okay, let's kind of skip through some of this to try to make our way to chapter four very quickly. Verse six, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed, right? But we'll be sure are thankful for those verses. Verse eight. Well, he tells them in verse seven, return unto me and I will return unto you. In other words, repent. And they say, why, why do we need to return? Why do we need to repent? We're not, we haven't left. <laughs> he said, return. They said, what are you talking about? We, we haven't went anywhere. We haven't left. We're, we're exactly where we're supposed to be. And the Lord's saying, no, you're not. No, you're not. You need to repent. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. And they said, wherein have we robbed it? We haven't done anything wrong. We haven't done anything wrong. You're cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house, and prove me now. Herewith saith the Lord of hosts, prove me, test me. If you, if you think that I'm not telling the truth, that I'm going to bless you beyond ways that you can't even imagine, just, just, check, just test me, just try me, just try me, and see if I don't pour out blessings upon you that you can't even handle that you can't even receive the fullness of them. Now, notice, I think verse 14 really kind of encapsulates a lot of this attitude that they had. Verse 14, Yet ye have said, It is vain to serve the Lord. It's vain to serve the Lord. Now, why did they think it was vain to serve the Lord? Because their attitude of religion was not just worshiping God because He's worthy of worship, right? He's worthy to be praised. He's worthy to be glorified. No, religion, the only reason I exercise religion is what I can get out of it. And if I'm not getting anything out of it, then it's vain for me to serve the Lord. If I'm not getting anything out of it, then what, what's the point in the first place? And God says, I'm the point. I'm the reason. But their perspective was it's vain to serve the Lord. Okay, we'll pick this up in future weeks. But what, what is our, um, what's our response? What's so vitally important in this lukewarm environment of religion where people think it's vain to serve the Lord and they give the Lord the leftovers and they're not serving the Lord in the way they ought to. What is so vitally important is the fellowship of the saints in the church. Verse 16, And they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts. In that day when I will make up my jewels, I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. The Lord takes special note and special remembrance in the midst of this ungodly, lukewarm, Laodicean society. When those that fear him, when they make a commitment to fellowship together, the Lord takes a special note of that. And then you fast forward here to chapter 4. I think it's 
primarily speaking of the second coming of the Lord. And you have this Elijah figure that comes on the scene in uh, verse 5, which John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But I also think that, at least my interpretation of Revelation chapter 11, is that at the end of time when the man of sin has his false prophet, the Lord will not be left without a witness. And there will be someone that will be raised up. Just as Moses was, those, those Egyptian um, magicians were having all these false signs, well, there was a, uh, a contrasting um, prophet that, were, that was delivering true signs. And what did those signs do? The snake, they consumed the Egyptian snake, right? So I would say that there, right at the end, there will be some figure that be raised up that is going to be similar to Elijah. I think that's referenced in Revelation chapter 11. But notice the purpose of it, though, okay? Was the purpose of John the Baptist, and what's the purpose of possibly that future figure? To reestablish the unity of families, okay? He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So what is vitally important? What is vitally important for God's people in this type of spiritual environment? It is the fellowship of the saints, those that fear the name, the name of the Lord and us fellowshipping and discussing the Lord together often. And then also unity with families. And there's nothing that, that Satan wants more than division and conflict and fracturing of families. But what does the gospel bring? The gospel, the gospel brings unity to families. And uh, we'll come back and revisit this uh, in weeks to come, particularly the Lord's Book of Fellowship. It's vitally important that we hold to the Word of God, fellowship, and the unity of our families in this type of ungodly and spiritual environment that I think we're already seeing today. But I believe that it will only continue to escalate. We need to make sure we're rooted and grounded in these things according to the Word of God. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.